A reading from the book of Luke. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. The word of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The parable we just heard, this remarkable parable, has only two characters, a Pharisee and a tax collector. Uh, I was told to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And I thought we'd start with the second character, the tax collector. Usually when you want to explain who the tax collector is, what that means in context, what that would have meant to those people hearing it, uh, I always sort of jump to Martin Scorsese, like mafiosos. Is what, these, are, these are extortionists. These were guys that were loan sharks. They were skimming off of the top of this uh, ta- so-called tax they were collecting. But I think that that, um, that almost romanticizes it a little bit. I think that a, a better analogy would be a capo. You know what a capo is? This is fresh to me. Capos were Jewish prisoners who um, uh, helped out at the concentration camps. They're the SS, it was so difficult to run these camps. There was so much administration needed that they had to enlist certain prisoners to help uh, make it as efficient as possible, and we all know what that means. And so these capos would um, help out, and in return they were spared hard labor and physical abuse, and they received privileges like cigarettes and, and private rooms, and needless to say, they were detested. They were absolutely hated. They were collaborators of the most egregious variety. And that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about men who are collaborating with an occupying force against their own neighbors. They were villains. They were villains. And so it's no wonder that this this guy would come into the back of the temple. Just just The fact that he makes it in at all is kind of remarkable. And uh, he looks up and simply says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. This is the great prayer this guy coined, or I guess Jesus coined it, of the Christian faith. But I don't want to talk about the tax collector tonight as a portrait of villainy. I'm more interested in him as a portrait of desperation. What is desperation? Desperation is the feeling of being in such a bad situation that you will take any risk to change it. And a desperate person is a dangerous person because they'll do whatever it takes to get what they want. A desperate person is um, unhinged usually and uh, uh, completely focused on their goal. Have you ever been desperate for something? Uh, I mean, I sometimes want to say I wish I was desperate for things the way my son is desperate for Legos. 
But I am, I guess, desperate for other things. Maybe you've known other people who are desperate that are older than six. Um, when I think of the word desperate, I, and if you don't want to go too deep, we'll go there, but let's start out light. The, the 1996 film Swingers. Dating myself, I know, but it's not a movie about sex. It's a movie about swing dancing. And the revival that happened in the mid-90s, this really did happen. People forget about it. But there was a revival of swing dancing in the mid-90s. Everyone was wearing zoot suits, and ska was a big deal, and everyone was doing the Lindy. And um, this movie was filmed with a young Vince Vaughn and a young John Favreau. John Favreau has gone on to film, to direct all of the Iron Man films. Anyway, it contains what might be the most uncomfortable scene in all of 90s cinema. And if you've watched it, you know what I'm talking about. These two guys, they're maybe on the lookout for uh, companionship, shall we say. And they have gone out to a swing dancing club, and they've come home. And the one played by John Favreau, who's clearly the, uh, the less confident, shall we say, of the two, he had met a young woman at the club and they'd hit it off, and he's excited. And so we get home, and he decides to just play it straight, and instead of waiting a couple days like his friends tell him to, we watch as he calls her, and he gets the answering machine. Hi, this is Nikki. Leave a message. Hi, Nikki. This is Mike. I met you tonight. I just called to say I had a great time, and and you should call me. My number is 555-BEEP. Cuts off. This is an old, you know. uh, So he calls back. Hi, this is Nikki. Leave a message. Nikki, this is Mike again. I think your machine might have cut off my number, but you were still at the club when I left, so I knew I'd get your machine, but my number is beep. Calls back. Hi, this is Nikki. Leave a message. 213-555-4679. Just want to leave my number so you didn't want you to think that I was desperate. We should just hang out, see where it goes. No expectations. Uh, Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Hangs up. Walks out of the frame, immediately comes back, picks up the phone. Hi, this is Nikki. Leave a message. I just got out of a six-year relationship, okay? That should explain why I'm acting so weird. It's not you. It's me. Sorry. Uh, This is Mike. Click. Immediately calls back. Hi, this is Nikki. Leave a message. Hi, Nikki. This is Mike. Can you just call me when you get in? I'm going to be up a while and rather speak to you in person. Beep. You think it's over? Calls again, redial. Hi, this is Nikki. Leave a message. Nikki, this is Mike. This just isn't working out. I, I, I think you're great, but uh, maybe we should just take some time. It's only been six months, at which point Nikki picks up the phone. Mike, don't ever call me again. <laughs> Click. Desperation when it comes to love is what we're all trying to cover up. No one wants to be Mike. Everyone wants to be Nikki. Uh, I mean, today, I'm constantly keeping track of how dating works in the modern world, not being out of it. And the way that you you try to reveal is no one wants to reveal desperation, and no one wants to risk rejection. But the stages that I can tell, as far as I can tell, guys, you can correct me later, it's um, we're we're texting, uh, we're talking, we're hanging out, we're together, we're dating. Right? Basically? Okay. (laughs) 
It is incremental amounts of revelation so that you do not expose yourself and get rejected. No one wants to be seen as desperate, and yet we are desperate for love. We're not just desperate for for love. I think we're desperate for approval. A friend of mine's father died a year ago, and he said, you know, I was desperate for my father to say four things to me, and I think a lot of children are. I wanted him to say, I love you, I'm with you, I'm proud of you, and I'm sorry. He said, I think I got about one and a half of those, and I wish I could see him now. We're desperate for healing, physical healing. Maybe you know someone who's just enrolled in an experimental trial, and you know what that, the, 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 what's going on there. There's desperation. Maybe you're desperate for your child to be happy, to kind of get it together and not need you so bad. Desperation springs up at the point where our control is thwarted. And the truth is, as that silly clip illustrates, desperation is ugly. In fact, it's repulsive. It is. It is. This is how the world works. You're welcome. Um, We spend a lot of time trying to hide our desperation. I mean, not just in dating. I I watch as uh, students apply for jobs, and the classic is, you know, sending an email, just checking in to make sure you got my resume. In other words, did you get my resume? I'm dying to know. Please email me back. Just touching base to make sure you're coming on Saturday night. Translation, if you don't come on Saturday night, it's over. Right? Gosh, I thought it'd be a lot more laughter. (laughs) Desperation. That's the tax collector. Second person in the parable is the Pharisee. He's not so desperate. He's upstanding. And uh, what he does is he prays and he thanks God that he's not like the tax collector. And then he says that he... um, He fasts twice a week, and he tithes. I mean, he gives a tenth of his income back to the temple, and he's probably not lying. He's not inflating things. Odds are he was telling the truth. He sacrificed fasting. You pay the cost in your physical body for your devotion to God. Uh, You pay the cost with your wallet for your devotion to God. And yet, as we know, his achievements uh, are not all there is. In fact, he has fooled himself into believing he's not desperate. He's fooled himself into believing that he doesn't really need much from God. And the fruit of that delusion in his life is not just superiority or self-righteousness, but contempt, contempt of other people. And that's just as ugly as desperation, contempt. What I'm driving at here is the desperation is a, is a fact of life. It's, a, it's just a fact of life uh, in a world of, uh, where control is limited. It's a fact of life in light of death. It's a fact of life in light of a holy God. The real truth is that we are all dependent, period. We are all dependent on God for our well-being, whether we admit it or not. We are all in some fashion or another, desperate. Maybe we go through periods where we're blinded to that fact, but then we experience the truth that life is fragile, or we experience that control is far more limited than we'd like to believe. And then we understand that there is a desperate component to our lives, 
even when it looks like the opposite to be true. But back to the parable. Underneath all this desperation is not really, according to the parable, it's not just desperation for approval or desperation for love or desperation for healing. The desperation is for justification because Jesus concludes by saying this, this guy went down justified before, before God. Justification, is that really on the list of things you feel you're, ju- you're desperate for? Probably not. But think of it another way. It's, justification is the, the sense that you're enough, that you're okay, that you are valuable, that you are righteous, that it, you are all right. Um, and uh, the moral psychologist Jonathan Haidt, in his book, The Righteous Mind, he goes as far to say that, that an obsession with righteousness, with enoughness, is the normal human condition. In other words, we're desperate not so much to be loved, but to be lovable, to be valuable, to be worthy. And that, my friends, is where this parable just starts to explode all of our preconceptions because Jesus declares that the one who's justified, the one who is enough, the one who is right with God is the tax collector, the villain, not the hero. He is the one who goes home justified. And the one who's blind to his desperation, well, we don't find out what happens to him. He's left to his own devices. But let's be clear, this tax collector is not somehow justified by his villainy. That would be absurd. He's not justified by his weakness or his humility. He's justified by God. You see, the tax collector brings nothing to the table, to the temple. He brings nothing but open hands, which means he is able to receive what God wants to give him, which is everything. This is the glorious revelation that we see uh, sown in this parable, that enoughness is a gift, not an achievement, given freely to those who don't deserve it, and yet at great cost to the giver himself, God, who gave his only son, who was crucified for our transgressions and raised for our justification. Now, this is extraordinarily good news for desperate people. For the non-desperate, you're out of luck. If you are desperate, well, then this is a supremely comforting parable. It tells us that your desperation is the window through which God arrives in your life. It also tells us that the extent to which you're out of touch with your desperation will be the extent to which you are self-righteous and contemptuous. But your desperation is the window through which God arrives in your life because this is the God who himself was made desperate, who cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Desperation as the prelude to redemption. I'll give you a picture of this, then I'm finished. In 1934, there was a 39-year-old man who had just been hospitalized for the fourth time in 15 months for alcoholism. 
he is sitting there extremely depressed in the hospital as friend after friend visits and tries to console him, but their presence seems to just drag him down further into his own malaise. And he writes, he says, my depression deepened unbearably, and finally it seemed to me as though I were at the bottom of a pit. I still gagged badly at the notion of a power greater than myself, capital P. But finally, just for the moment, the vestige of my proud obstinacy was crushed. All at once I found myself crying out, If there is a God, let him show himself. I am ready to do anything. Anything. Suddenly, he writes, the room lit up with a great white light. I was caught up into an ecstasy which there are no words to describe. It seemed to me in the mind's eye that I was on a mountain and that a wind not of air but spirit was blowing. And then it burst upon me that I was a free man. All about me and through me there was a wonderful feeling of presence. And I thought to myself, so this is the God of the preachers. A great peace stole over me, and I thought, no matter how wrong things seem to be, they are right. Things are all right with God and his world. Now, some of you know that that man was Bill Wilson, and he went on to found Alcoholics Anonymous, a movement that now has more adherence than Chicago has residents without any publicity, or recruitment initiatives. It is a fellowship not of the self-satisfied or contemptuous. It is a fellowship of the desperate. You see, people do not come to AA to get made a little better, and they do not come because the, the best people are doing it. They come because they are desperate. They are not ladies and gentlemen looking for a religion, They are utterly desperate men and women in search of redemption. Without what AA gives, which is the power of the God of the preachers, death stares them in the face. With what AA gives them, there is life and hope. Which is a long-winded way of saying to you tonight that no matter where you are, no matter what kind of desperation you're dealing with it, if it's the quiet kind, if it's the acute kind, God is not like Nikki. God is not like Nikki. He is not repulsed by your desperation. When you dial that number, he answers the call, and when he does, his message is simple. It's I love you, I'm with you, I'm proud of you, And I'm sorry. Amen.